You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Caligula, even as a boy, was having some issues. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, and today we are so happy to welcome onto the show Debbie Felton. Hello! (laughs) Hi! Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, we're so thrilled about this conversation. Debbie is a professor of classics at the University of Massachusetts. She specializes in folklore and literature surrounding the monstrous and supernatural. And she's the editor of the journal Preternature, Critical and Historical Studies on the Preternatural, as well as associate review editor for the Journal of the Fantastic in the Arts. She's the author of several books, including the one we are here to discuss today, Monsters and Monarchs, Serial Killers in Classical Myth and History. Welcome! <laughs> thanks. No, that was, a, that was a great intro. Thanks. Um, and thanks again for having me. You are welcome. This is so exciting. We are so ridiculously excited to have you on the show. I'm such a big Murderino true crime fan. So anytime I get to talk serial killers, particularly in antiquity or in mythology, I'm like, please give me all the details. <laughs> Jen is a serial, is a, I don't want to say a serial killer fan. No, I'm not. I'm not. No, I don't. I don't. I actually really don't like serial killers. Well, that's, that's, that's good here. <laughs> I like true crime because I like to see how the crime gets solved. Well, I, I you know, I, th- I think it's good if you know that a, a killer has been caught and you don't have to worry about being out there anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then you also get to see the process and like how people figured it out and the methodology. Like to me, that story is more interesting than some jerk who did a horrible thing. We, we know what you mean. Well, we're here to talk about jerks who did horrible things today, Jen, in the ancient world. (laughs) Is one of them Theseus? Because I have a theory. (laughs) Possible. Anyway, so, uh, Debbie, your basic thesis in your book, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but just to orient people here, is that uh, serial killers are not a modern phenomenon. There were lots of serial killers in ancient times, and you look at them particularly in ancient Greece and Rome. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, I I cannot say definitively that they were absolutely, for sure, serial killers. My thesis is more like we see things that look like what we would consider to be serial killers. You know, I don't want to state something definitive when there's no way to definitely prove it, given that there's zero forensic evidence and people weren't caught and a lot of the stories are mythological rather than historical, etc. No, no, I mean, you've got it. That's basically what I'm saying is that we, sh- we should not think of serial killing as a modern phenomenon. Not that everybody does. There, there's certainly scholars out there who have already said, oh, there's one in ancient China and look at this one person in ancient Rome or whatever. But in general, people just sort of point to, you know, Jack the Ripper and uh, maybe like, this burgeoning of serial killers in the in the United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, H.H. H. Holmes. Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. Around the same time as, uh, as Jack the Ripper. You know, I think he's finally become a little more well-known in the last couple of decades. But when I was um, growing up anyway, nobody ever talked about H.H. H. Holmes and the Chicago World's Fair and his alleged house of uh, horrors, which I guess has been debunked. But anyway. I feel like that when it, he became like much more like popular was when the book The Devil in the White City came out, at least for me. Yeah, yes. That's not Arsene, right? Eric Larson, yeah. Or Eric Larson, sorry. I mean, I read it when it first came out, so it's been a, it's been a while, yeah. How are you defining serial killers in the Greek and Roman world? Yeah, see, that that's that's the big question, right? Because can we apply like modern definitions to what was going on two or 3,000 years ago? 
So to start with like the most general definition of serial killer, but one that's basically used by law enforcement, is that we're, we're looking at somebody who, who kills at least two people, usually more, at intervals over a period of time, maybe even a long one, if, you know, if they're not caught, and usually by a, a sort of specific, uh, they, they uh, have a specific method of doing so that they like, like they either strangle or they poison or they stab or what have you. Um, and they also have a sort of consistent victim pool, like a particular type of target that they like. So it's a very general definition, and it's constantly in flux, too. I mean, for for a while there, I think the FBI versus other law enforcement agencies didn't even have the same working definition um, that it has to be outside the house. Oh, but what about all these home killers who, who bring their victims home like Jeffrey Dahmer? So uh, so there was really ever since the phrase was was coined, which I think wasn't even until what was it the early 80s. I, I should know the exact date, but for some reason I'm blanking out on it. But serial killer is a relatively recent term for this type of killer. I mean, that is to say it's within the last, you know, 40 years or 40 or 50 years only. You said like they have to kill more than one person, right? So what's the difference between a serial killer and like a spree killer? Well, the the spree killer and a related the related sort of mass uh, mass killer is they will kill a, a whole lot of people at one time or within a short period of time. So they'll go on the road and they'll just start shooting whoever they see. Or it'll be something like what happened in Las Vegas the other year, where someone's just shooting a bunch of people down. And that sort of thing was a lot more difficult to pull off in antiquity when you didn't have these sorts of weapons that can that can do that. But the psychology it also seems to be different. And I should put in my disclaimer here, I'm definitely not a psychologist, and I'm not a criminologist either. I'm just looking at patterns in, in literature. You know, so this is more of a, a pop culture approach to, to serial killing, although I, I certainly tried to read you know, some legitimate scholarship about it. But I can't, I cannot claim to, you know, understand the details of the psychology or the criminology because it's not my, it's not my field. No, it's one of those things where I get confused sometimes between the difference between the two. So I just want to make sure we're making it clear for listeners. No, I mean, well, you've got these, you know, young men in particular who will go and shoot up schools or a movie theater or whatever. And that's very different from serial killing. Because they kill more than one, one victim. Well, I mean, the the Zodiac killer also occasionally had two in one place. Um, you know, if there were a couple. But um, so I, again, it's sort of a, a I don't want to say a mushy definition in some ways, but there are distinct differences in the goals. I mean, the serial killers are not looking for attention; they're not looking to be caught. Whereas the mass killers, you know, have this like they break suddenly and then they just go out and do this, or maybe they plan it a little ahead in terms of getting the weapon, and then when they finally do it, it's just all out. And they don't even mind if they, you know, are shot themselves in the process, say, for example. And I mean, it's not always shooters either. There have been some mass knifings, right, um, in the past few months. Um, but you, you certainly don't get as many people at once. Serial killers also take a, like, they take a trophy, right? Isn't that a thing? They can. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's every single, you know, serial killer on record. I don't, I don't think, you know, that they all take trophies, but it is common. Or at least, I mean, I, I'm trying not to mix up what we see on TV shows versus what actually happens. But there are certain, there are certain types of serial killer that do take trophies. Um, and it sort of holds them over until their next, their next victim. When you say there are different types of serial killers, what does that mean exactly? Well, what I found when I was researching this is that criminologists and psychologists sort of, they try to sift out different types of serial killer in terms of their motivations. Like, are they killing for profit? Are, are they killing for a certain kind of attention, like different from the, the mass murderers, but say, you know, female serial killers who uh, come very close to, or, or maybe it even is a form of Munchausen by proxy, Munchausen's syndrome by proxy where they want attention and they'll do it by, you know, slowly killing a child or a spouse. And over time, it starts to kind of accumulate until finally people are like, that's an awful lot of close relatives who have died. Um, so so again, there's, there's for attention, there's for um, a sexual satisfaction, there's power, you know, for power over people. You know, this is another area where there isn't necessarily total absolute agreement among the uh, psychologists and criminologists who try to categorize power control killers versus narcissistic. I mean, I mean, a lot of them, you know, demonstrate narcissism anyway. But um, the, the point is that there are quite a few different uh, categories, depending on how you want to look at the serial killers. 
What was law enforcement like in the time periods that you were looking at? And how did the Greeks and Romans treat serial killers or murderers or murder as a crime differently? Yeah, well, that's, that's a couple of great questions. And they're kind of big ones. So I'll try to just give a couple of examples. Um, so generally in ancient Greece, I mean, in antiquity in general, there wasn't what we would think of as a police force, like law and enforcement. In Rome, it would be maybe the Roman army, for example, and there would be local magistrates who would be in charge of, of law and order, and people would take their complaints to a local magistrate. But, um, you know, farther back than, than Imperial Rome, I mean, back in ancient Greece, there wasn't really even that. And it was more of a neighborhood watch situation where, you know, you would bring people up, you know, you would charge them with something, they'd be brought to trial. And then they, the, the Greeks, I, I, maybe you were alluding to this, but the Greeks had at least uh, at one point, the Athenians had something like five different law courts for different types of crimes to be tried at. And uh, so it was really sort of self-policing within communities, depending on how long ago you're talking about. And again, for, for Rome, the, the army tended to, you know, station troops in various places around the empire to help help maintain law and order. But uh, it's it was all really different from what we would think of as modern uh, policing. I don't think I answered the whole question. It was a big question. What was the other part of it? <laughs> oh, the, the other part of it was how did the Greeks and Romans view and treat murder as a crime and murderers differently? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, to take what I just said about ancient Greece with these several different law courts, one of the neat things about ancient Athens is that they really sort of started the differentiation among types of motivations for crimes, uh, like was it pre-planned? Was it premeditated? Or was it just, you know, angry on the spur of the moment, like you walked in on your wife and her lover and you killed the lover, you know, because you didn't know that was going on versus um, I've stalked somebody and I'm now killing them and mutilating their body. So they distinguished among these different types of murder. And there was also, well, what happens if you kill somebody accidentally during war who was on your side? So the sort of what we call friendly fire, except back then it wasn't like literally firearms. It was, you know, if you throw a spear and accidentally hit one of your own guys, which is not funny, but, you know, so I'm not, I'm not meaning to laugh at it, but they, it was really kind of amazing how they developed this law, this law system in, in ancient uh, Athens in particular, and uh, other Greek city-states besides the one that Athens was in also had uh, different laws, but we know the most about Athens, I guess. And then Rome, and again, it's so different because we're talking about like really, you know, we tend to lump Greece and Rome together, but they had very different structures. Rome, for example, also had laws about, about murder, but uh, it worked a little differently in terms of uh, the extent to which they cared. So it was sort of more like what we see in some areas of the U.S. today, where the more prominent you were, the more seriously they, they took the murder. Um, so if there were, say, you know, prostitutes being killed serially in the poor sections of, of Rome, we don't even know because nobody wrote anything about that. We only know when prominent politicians were killed, for example. So, I mean, there are a couple of exceptions to that. Like, you know, there was a, sort of a mass murder of some laborers in a forest in South Italy, that was very odd and upsetting because, uh, and the Roman government got involved. But in general, Greece and Rome worked kind of differently in terms of how they handled these things and what the punishments were for them. And, you know, in one instance, when in a, a Greek example, although it was during the Roman Empire, the prosecutor basically said something to the effect of, you killed so many people, if only we, if only we could sentence you to more than one death sentence or something along those lines. So they were sort of getting at the idea we have now where you've got like five life sentences, symbolic rather than actually going to happen, right? I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I would love to hear about some examples of serial killing instances or that you class as serial killing instances that we may not have heard of today that involve people who were not famous? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the problem is that most of the instances 
are known because they were famous people or they're mythological examples. Like I think uh, the other Jan, I think mentioned Theseus at one point. Look, Ariadne got off easy just being left on an island. We know what could have happened to her. So, um, and not to swerve in a different direction, because I do want to answer your question, but Theseus is a mythological hero. And uh, he, as part of his like road towards heroism, what he did was he went around killing a lot of criminals. But in doing so, the question comes up, you know, as to whether, well, should we consider Theseus himself a serial killer if he's going around killing all these other people? He's kind of like Dexter, right? (laughs) You know, is he a Dexter figure? (laughs) Well, there are some major distinctions that the Greeks were making in the case of Theseus. The six criminals he killed were basically highway robbers. Although, again, highway robbers don't necessarily have to kill and mutilate people, which is what these people what these six criminals were doing. I mean, you've got um, the, this one character, Sinus or Sinus, the, known as the pine bender, who would uh, waylay people on the highway and like tie them to trees and then let the trees go, like let go. And then the person would be like torn in two. At least that's one version of, of that story. And so when these juice came, came along, he uh, did the same thing to, to the criminal. Um, so he tended to kill them by their, their own methods. But the distinction the Greeks, that the Greeks were making was that Theseus, even though he intentionally set out to face these criminals, meaning he was basically planning to overcome them and presumably kill them if he could. So even though he had this, you know, pre-intent, you know, his motive was to clean up the roads, to make them safer for society, to make them safer for people to, to, to travel on. But also he knew that by killing people, he was uh, what the Greeks considered sort of polluted with bloodshed, you know, more metaphorically than, than literally. And so he had to undergo, uh, like voluntarily, he voluntarily underwent a purification ritual to, you know, uh, ritually cleanse himself, ritually, symbolically, metaphorically cleanse himself of all of that bloodshed, because he knew that it's not okay to kill people and that these were extreme situations. Whereas, you know, in contrast, the people that he killed, you know, were, were portrayed as having no conscience, no regrets, just in it for the malicious pleasure of stealing people's money and then, you know, murder mutilating them. I mean, you know, I mean, in some cases, they're still alive when they're being, you know, mutilated, torn apart by the the tree or whatever. Um, Procrustes was another example, maybe the more famous one. Procrustes is my favorite name. (laughs) We did something on ancient world torture and talked about how Procrustes is probably, you know, one of the older mentions of Iraq. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't necessarily call it Iraq in the sense that um, people were like, like there were wheels that they were put on and then uh, people would turn them and literally stretch their bodies on Iraq. What Procrustes seems to have done, according to the, you know, different variants of the story, is Procrustes was another one of these six criminals that Theseus came across. And Procrustes was known for his, initially for his hospitality. He would invite weary travelers to stay overnight in his little, you know, hut. But once they got there, he would uh, presumably tie them to the bed to do what he had to do, which was if they were too short for the bed, he would take a mallet and pound out their bones until their bones were all broken so that he could stretch their, their limbs, their legs to, to fit the bed. So that, that's, that's where it resembles the rack is like stretching the short people. But he did that by breaking their bones. And if people were too tall for his bed, he would saw off the extra length, like cut them off at the knees. One of the particularly interesting things about Procrustes is that aside from this early, you know, resemblance to to the rack in terms of what he was doing to get people to fit the bed, he has what, you know, we could call a murder kit, which is this uh, term applied to some modern serial killers like uh, Ted Bundy, for example, or the fictional Dexter who had his like, medic, you know, kit of, of scalpels and hacksaws and whatever. But so the uh, the murderer, the serial killer has like this assortment of tools that he regularly uses. And I say he because it's most often he, although there are some she's. But anyway, so like a kit of tools that are used. And for Ted Bundy, it was like, I, I forget the exact details, but you know, uh, probably things like duct tape and rope in addition to weapons. That would be sort of typical. Uh, Peter Sutcliffe in the UK had something similar, a murder kit. Yeah, so I think they they found a bunch of stuff in the trunk of Ted Bundy's uh, VW Bug. I think it was it was it was the what the seventies. I'm I'm trying to remember. Uh, but yeah, so Procrustes makes a really good example because of that, and also because you know you don't want to overanalyze something that you only have you know very short versions of. But the bed, you know, there might be some sexual symbolism in there also. 
which is an element in a lot of serial, uh, more modern serial killer uh, makeup, I guess. There's actually something super interesting about the Procrustes story and these other stories, but especially that one that I think you also bring up in your book is that it kind of shows like an uneasiness about staying with strangers. And that also appears in in kind of Greek mythology and philosophy because, you know, Zeus is like Zeus Xenia, like it's really forbidden to do bad things to strangers staying in your house, like laws of hospitality. But like the realities of people traveling, there must have been quite a lot of danger. Bandits, you would sometimes have to stay with people who you didn't know. So you're kind of at their mercy. And what do those stories tell us about the historical reality of travel and the dangers of travel in this time? Oh, well, you're exactly right. There was a lot of anxiety about being out on the roads. And if people were wealthy enough, they could hire some armed you know, guards to go with them. And women were told to, you know, not flaunt their jewelry, for example, if they were traveling with their family members. Um, You know, if you could travel in a group, it was better. Most of these stories say that, you know, these these criminals targeted lone travelers. But there was in reality, like, you know, in, in historically, there were highway, highwaymen, usually bands of highwaymen who would attack as a group and rob travelers. You know, again, the murder rate um, among highwaymen attacks is is different from what we're seeing in the stories because the highwaymen really were out for the loot and not, you know, didn't necessarily feel a need to cut somebody limb from limb. But in the stories, we are seeing, you know, the de-emphasis on the robbery part and a very strong emphasis on the murder and mutilation part of it. Um, so, yeah, there was a fear of the roads. These stories like Theseus and even before Theseus, the stories of his older cousin Heracles, uh, Hercules, that traveling along the roads, it's like you just said, Jen, um, you didn't know who were going, who you were going to meet. You had to sort of rely on the kindness of strangers, you know, not so much in a Tennessee Williams sort of way. And uh, there's definitely some xenophobia built in. Part of what seems to be going on with even just the stories of Theseus, the people that he meets, I mean, he meets them in Greece you know, so he's not like like Heracles was traveling like North Africa, the Caucasus Mountains. You know, he was all over the place. Theseus was only traveling in Greece, and his the stories seem to reflect just like the Athenians telling stories about neighboring Greek city states. You know, ones that they didn't like very much. You know, so that with the people of Athens, for whom Theseus was like he was the Athenian hero, as opposed to Heracles, who was like this Pan-Hellenic hero. So Theseus was the Athenian guy. And so when he would meet, you know, these criminals in other city states in Greece, some of whom were like the kings of those areas, it seems like some of that can be interpreted as political propaganda. You know, it's 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 highly doubtful that the king of the neighboring city state was a serial killer. Uh, but, you know, they the Athenians might want to portray him like that, just to say, oh, this is why we don't like them. And this is why they're bad and we're good. And you know, so again, political pro- propaganda probably uh, almost certainly had a hand in, in, in how some of these stories were told. You know, counterpoint, though, people who were kings did not have a lot of checks on their power. So if they did have a serial killing instinct, there wasn't a lot to stop them, right? Yeah, no, I mean, abuse of power is another issue. And this is another one of the problems with trying to define what would count as a serial killer, because to what extent is there a difference between a king or tyrant or the absolute ruler just, you know, killing people or ordering them to be killed versus the mentality of a, of a serial killer? Is it just that the king can do it more openly? And there are differences, too, though, in some of the some of the stories that are told about the kings. It's the kings that kill people with their own hands that are the ones you want to worry about. I mean, sure, you want to worry about emperors like Tiberius ordering dozens and dozens and dozens of executions, whether they were justified or not. You've got a paranoid ruler, and he's just executing anybody he perceives as a potential threat to his power. That's a little different from what seems to uh, motivate serial killers. And there's still, I mean, again, the, the killing on their own with their own hands versus having somebody else do it for them is part of it. But even in antiquity, I mean, I mentioned um, when we first started that other people, other scholars have pointed out serial killers in the ancient world, usually just one here and one there. But a big name that comes up is Locusta of Gaul, who is a female. And the of Gaul is like, well, pointing out that she's a foreigner, right? Because Gaul is is now France. You know, some of these encyclopedias of serial killers put Locusta of Gaul in there as a female serial killer. She was a professional poisoner, you know, so they're saying, well, is she the closest equivalent? Because she didn't necessarily 
go kill a bunch of people on her own. We, we don't really know if she did that or not. She was a poisoner for hire, you know, and she did do jail time. And ultimately, she was executed for providing all that poison. But is sometimes held up as one of the principal examples from antiquity. But we can argue about, well, was she really a serial killer um, if she was just sort of providing poison for people? I kind of feel really strongly. It's like, well, she might have made the poison, but we don't like arrest the blacksmith for making the swords, right? So why should we arrest her for making the poison? She didn't tell you to go poison someone she just provided you with the weapon and the other interesting thing too i mean this is obviously a a defense one can use is a lot of those plants like aconite and other plants they were also kind of like aspirin when used in smaller doses like they had medicinal properties and then they could also have poisoning properties so you could have a plant of that in your backyard and just be like oh i'm just using it for you know natural remedies well, that actually seems to be what happened on sm- on a smaller level. So there are a lot of stories of women being accused of witchcraft and not necessarily famous women either, you know, so just uh, like women in society who accidentally, you know, like they, they accidentally poisoned somebody when they intended the herbs to work as a love potion and they just gave too much or whatever. So, so we have like small accounts of women being prosecuted for killing people, even if it was unintentional, or they were accused of witchcraft because they were growing all these herbs and things. But the laws, there weren't very severe laws against witches per se in antiquity. There were laws against poisoners. But uh, uh, evidently, Lacusta of Gaul was, was so useful uh, Lacusta was so useful to the imperial family that they kind of kept her around. I would say the real serial killers are the imperial family. Let's be honest. Like Livia, Agrippina the the Younger, like they knew what they were doing and I, I support them. <laughs> Jen, what was that? You want to revise that situation where you said you didn't like serial killers? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think anyone who's listened to the podcast knows I have real mixed feelings, but they are strong feelings about Agrippina the Younger because... That was a real difficult time to live and position to be in. Not good with the incest. <laughs> Livia, Livia I, I don't know about Livia. I think that that may be colored by I, Claudius, because I I don't think like Tacitus or Suetonius or the usual group of, of Roman historians, I, I don't think they actually attribute a bunch of killings to Livia, but definitely to Nero's mom, Agrippina, and to Nero, of course. And um, I mean, and Caligula is a whole separate problem because he just there's something going on there that's really different from what you see in serial killers whereas Nero uh you know fits the pattern a lot better uh keeping in mind that you know the accounts we have of Nero are highly colored by biased historians who clearly did not like him the same with Agrippina (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) well and you end up sort of feeling sorry for Agrippina because I mean Nero tries to kill her a couple of times and fails miserably and then finally he just sends his soldiers after her oh yeah I mean she's been exiled she's watched her whole family be killed off she's like I made it I had to marry my uncle but I made it Oh, good grief. My son is an even worse monster than anyone else I've met in my family. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and yet she was really, you know, trying to get him to to be emperor. And they had Britannicus killed along, you know, they, they made sure Britannicus was out of the way. I think that was Nero who did it. I don't think she was involved in that one. You know, it's, I mean, I, Lacusta was involved. I'm trying to remember. I think, huh, um, maybe it was described as just being Nero who acquired the poison from Lacusta for that. Yeah, because remember, it was that that whole story about how the poison didn't kill quick enough. So he made her like keep boiling it down and down and down until it killed a sow within a minute or something. Yeah. There's that whole description of her facial expression when Britannicus died where she's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Look at this monster I've created. (laughs) I think it was Nero and I think it was an ultimate power move because like once that happened, Agrippina was like, oh, boy. He figured out how to poison. I am into trouble. Well, it was so public. I mean, it was such a public death, Britannicus. Like, it was at a dinner party, right? Like, he was sitting at the kids' table or whatever. He was at the kids' table. <laughs> he dies suddenly and horribly. And then Nero manages to, or he arranges to have the body cremated so quickly that nobody can examine it, apparently. I think it was at a Saturnalia dinner party. Yeah, I mean, Nero was just sort of like, oh, he's just got an upset stomach, don't worry about it. Yeah, and I think this is when Nero was still married to Britannicus's sister. And, like, everyone just had to sit there and be like, 
Oh, okay, nothing's happened. Nothing to see here. It's still Saturnalia. <laughs> so what qualities of, of serial killers do we see in people like Nero and Caligula? Because they are quite different, right? Like they do kill people with their own hands. Well, Caligula, um, again, you know, given the biased reports that we have, he sounds like there was really uh, a very different kind of mental problem here. Um, I mean, because there were just so many other things going on besides just having people killed. Okay, to be fair, yeah, Caligula, even as a boy, was having some issues. But the information we get from, say, Tacitus and Suetonius about Nero's uh, childhood and young adulthood sounds so much more like what we might think of as a, a, a typical serial uh, killer pattern, which is that, you know, Nero had the... Um, the absent father, the absent mother was raised by like the family barber and a dancer or something. His mother finally came back and like didn't pay any attention to him. And he was always trying to get her attention. And so he just started acting out and, and like in really bad ways. So, I mean, he would start bar fights. And I mean, at one point, there's a story that he goes out in disguise at night and kills men coming home from dinner and throws their bodies in the canal or something. And then the sexual deviancy is really emphasized with, with Nero. Again, in these historical accounts that we have, which we do have to take with a grain of salt. But I think the point isn't necessarily that Nero actually did all these things so much as the point being that we have these descriptions that sound a lot like what we think of as serial killers. So they clearly were noticing patterns like this back then. So it isn't just like, oh, well, Jeffrey Dahmer was killing animals and setting things on fire and abusing alcohol and, and grew up to you know be a serial killer. It's like, well, we see that pattern 2000 years ago. Also, whether it was accurate for Nero or not, clearly some people were aware that these patterns of be, you know behavior when you're younger can kind of be a signal that there's going to be even bigger problems when you're older. Yeah, that is so fascinating. Like just that, the, like even if it wasn't Nero doing these things, even if it was propaganda, like people were aware that this this was a thing people did. So this was a thing that existed in the zeitgeist already. His father isn't only absent, like his father beat a child to death because he, I don't know, he got in front of his cart. Ahino Barbus. No, he ran over that kid in the street, remember? And I think he beat a slave to death, an enslaved person to death, because he wasn't drinking enough. Like, they were drinking together. It was something dumb like that. Yeah. His father is described as being, like, the worst dude in all of ancient Rome, which says a lot at this time. His mother maybe had incest with her brother and was exiled and married her uncle and then maybe slept with her son. I mean, I don't know about any of that because propaganda. But before that, you had his let's let's go through his other uncles. His eldest uncle was starved to death. The other one was exiled on an island and then quietly killed. Germanicus possibly poisoned. Definitely poisoned grandmother exiled and murdered like his family is so broken and the psyche of like these people who should have had a good life is so shattered and they're also like deeply inbred <laughs> that family tree is a circle yeah well that i mean just the whole imperial family it's it's kind of insane the things that are attributed to them by the historians and very hard to, to know, you know how much is might actually be true and, and as I say, you know, the, um, uh, Robert Graves' I, Claudius, and the long-ago BBC series really also sort of colored people's perceptions of the imperial family, especially Livia, for example. Absolutely. And there are, there are really good books that have been produced since then, including, like, um, I always come back to Emma Southens' brilliant book on Agrippina, which just gives you a different way of looking at that family, particularly the women in that family and centering them which I think is super important because we don't usually get to see the women as having any agency or having a role other than being driven around by men, being seductresses, being adulteresses. Yeah, well, they're, they're jockeying for their closest family members, like, you know, like Agropino, to, to, to get the, their men into the positions of power so that they themselves can then wield as much as is possible for a woman at the time. Or just be safe. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a point when Caligula at the beginning of his reign gives his sisters essentially the power of vestal virgins to walk about, to have like lictors, people protecting them for them to be in public. You can't imagine how that would have been to have been like shunted from different family members. Everyone's getting killed. Your great uncle's killing people. Everyone you know is, is either in a conspiracy or not in a conspiracy. You don't know what to say. And now you finally have safety and then it's all gone. It's a wild way to live. And you can imagine it would have had an impact on how they raised their children. And 
to be fair, I think the only surviving child from that family was Nero. <laughs> the entire family history is so just um, elaborate and distorted that I can't remember, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. And of course, Nero ended up basically having to kill himself when he was in his early 30s. Even the Nero killing himself is very much like reminds me of sort of like what happens to some modern serial killers when the jig is up. He doesn't want to face the consequences for the actions of what he did as a predator for so many years. Are you thinking more of like the modern mass killers? No, I'm thinking like, um, in particular, I'm thinking of uh, Andrew Cunanan, who assassinated Gianni Versace, because that's what he did. They get away for so long. And then once the news starts closing in. So were there professions or roles in society other than emperor or king? (laughs) Because I think that that one is probably easy to be, well, easy-ish to be a serial killer in that role because there are a few checks on your power up to a point. But were there other professions or roles in society back then that tended to attract people who felt a compulsion to kill? And we were talking about bandits earlier. That might be an example. Yeah. Well, there are the bandits and then there are the professional hitmen. So um, the Sicarii, the dagger men, sort of, I don't want to say like, you know, an ancient equivalent of the mafia or anything, but there were definitely certain professions that could attract people with a predilection for killing and and gave them, you know, some sort of more legitimacy to do so. It's not the same as the the army, though, because uh, people uh, didn't necessarily have a choice about whether they were uh, drafted into the Roman army or not, or for that matter, even into the the Greek army. Um, It was sort of like you were expected as a citizen to to do that uh, to a certain extent. So the the highwaymen, um, I mean, we did already talk about them a little bit, but there was a case it's a fictional case, but based on real life knowledge of similar cases. So there's a case from about the um, third or fourth, fourth century CE where um, it's, again, it's a fictional case, but it's an example of how to prosecute a murderer. And it's, it's another case where notably we get some background of the, the killer. And it's sort of like what you hear about Nero. Uh, in this instance, the, the fictional killer, again, presumably based on real uh, examples, the killer was described as, you know, having been allowed to get away with minor crimes for such a long time that he got bolder and bolder and progressed to much more serious ones. So when he was younger, he, you know, would break through the neighbor's walls and commit robbery and he would attack women. The Greek verb used there, bebiastes, alludes to rape, basically. So he attacked women. And uh, because he never really paid the penalty for any of these things, he just eventually ended up as the killer that you see now before you. And uh, what was particularly heinous uh, was that he he worked by himself rather than in a band of of other highwaymen. And he was described uh, by the prosecutor as watching from a hilltop, you know, to to sort of see who looked the most vulnerable, uh, like lone travelers passing by which again would usually be men because you're not going to have women out by them by themselves unaccompanied generally. And uh, so he would attack them and he would tease them like, oh, well, maybe I'll let you go. And they would beg for their lives and they would be down on their knees begging for their lives. And uh, he would give them false hope. And then he would kill them and he would chop them into bits and he would hide the bodies so that the families got no closure. You know, and not having a body to bury was... I mean, it was very, very important to have a body to bury in ancient uh, ancient Greece. And so lack of a proper burial would just be like insanely horrible for the family. I mean, it still is, obviously. Uh, so the, the prosecution in this made up case, again, presumably based on real cases, really sort of noted the pattern again, the same one that was exhibited with, with Nero, according to the, the Tacitus Suetonius, for example. And this is this is actually this the bit that I alluded to before when when I was mentioning the sentence that in this case the prosecutor says something like you know if only we could you know sentence you to death multiple times over to reflect how many people you killed but unfortunately we can't. I mean it seems like this is like a power and control serial killer, right? Yeah. And the other thing is like he targets people who are vulnerable and is is that a thing that serial killers often do even in modern times? Like a lot of serial killers target women specifically women who society deems marginalized, like I think women of color, sex workers. Yeah, I mean, we certainly hear a lot about that particular kind of victim, but also, I mean, the the Atlanta child murders, for example, people who are marginalized by class or race. Young women are 
a lot easier <laughs> to, to target in a lot of ways. The other reason, though, behind a lot of that is that apparently a lot of the serial killers that we know of because they became so famous, unfortunately, have these mother issues. So they're taking out like furious rage against their mother. They're taking it out uh, against someone who's a lot more vulnerable, who they, who is a substitute somehow for the mother. <coughs> Nero. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, although Nero didn't seem to have a specific victim type, actually. Yeah, but like, uh, we don't know when, you know, we've got these serial killers um, like Zodiac, who targeted both men and women and sometimes couples um, and was never caught, may have been caught for something else and died in prison or just disappeared and went somewhere else. Who knows? Jack the Ripper was never caught and uh, that was never really solved. People are still trying to like put forth, oh, here's who I think it was. You know, sometimes there are very specific types, like with Jack the Ripper, uh, aiming towards prostitutes in a particular poor area of London. Whereas like Ted Bundy went after co-eds from the universities and um, well, Jeffrey Dahmer went after young men, usually teenagers or early 20s. And, uh, and he, you know, his, he was unusual. I mean, not just in terms of uh, preferring uh, male victims, but because he had this idea that he, w- he wanted to experiment on them to see if he could make them his sex slaves. And he would, he would just sort of operate on their brains and he would just sort of cut into their brains and pour some, try to, he would try to lobotomize them, uh, some of them. So, you know, there's something a little, diff- a little different about, about everyone. And I don't know if you've um, seen the recent uh, Hulu show, The Patient. Have you, heard, have you heard of that one? I've heard of it, but I won't get it for a while because um, Hulu tends to get shown by Disney Plus over here. I probably won't get to see it for a bit, but it sounds amazing and really fascinating. Well, it, it it is an interesting twist. I mean, you've got, I mean, without giving anything away, because this happens, you know, very, very soon in the very first episode, that a serial killer basically kidnaps a therapist because the serial killer wants to not be one anymore um, and doesn't know how to stop his impulses or control his, control his compulsions. Uh, the idea that a serial killer would want to stop is not all that common in terms of what the... Uh, the people who have interviewed uh, killers who are in jail, you know, for example, um, like mine, like if you've seen, if you've seen the show Mindhunter, which is based on John Douglas's book, I mean, the, the serial killers don't usually say, yeah, I wish I had to stop myself or wish somebody could have stopped me. That's, that's generally not what they say. There was something in your book that I actually really wanted to bring up. So I remember uh, going back to Theseus a little bit and the Chromionian sow. Um, who is, I believe in the mythology, there's a question whether this is actually a, a literal sow or if this was a woman that everyone called a sow. Because even in the ancient world, people are mean. Misogyny, shocker. But there was something that you mentioned in your book, and I've never seen this take before, and I was so fascinated. The idea of people, fe- like serial killers, feeding their victims to animals and the tie-in to this sow situation. Yes. Well, I mean, there are some real life cases, you know, from the last few decades where, yes, people will try to dispose of the bodies by feeding them to alligators or feeding them to the pigs, you know, because pigs will eat anything. Um, But yeah, so the Chromionian sow, that was one of the six uh, incidents. uh, Well, the woman who was in control of the Chromionian sow, one of the, so there were these six criminals that Theseus came across. This was before he became really famous for like going and killing the Minotaur. This was when he was actually trying to find his absent father. But um, yeah, I mean, about the Chromionian sow. Um, so the, one of the comparisons I make in my book actually is to Betty White's character in Lake Placid. I mean, that, that after she died not that long ago, that movie suddenly like a lot more people were watching it. I haven't seen the movie. So what is she, does she feed bodies to an animal? So, well, it's more like she raises the, you know, these giant, um, was it a crocodile or an alligator? I can't actually remember. It should have been an alligator, I guess. If it was. Um, but yeah, no, she just, she sort of raises them and she's aware that they're killing people. Although, it, although it's heavily implied that she does kill her husband and feed him to the, to the animal. As you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so when I was reading about the, the old, because the thing with the Chromionian sow is that it seems to have been controlled by an old woman. Or as you were saying, maybe it was the old woman herself who was referred to as a sow. Um, but in either case, she is associated, the woman is associated with killing. We have material evidence for a lot of these myths as well. I mean, again, not that these are real incidents, 
But you can see vase paintings from ancient Greece with Phaya um, portrayed as an old woman with white hair, like pointing the sow at Theseus, like, go get him, you know, like sick him. Um, and it's this giant, you know, it's just gigantic, scary um, sow. And as you may know, I mean, these hogs, pigs, sows, whatever, swine, they can grow huge and hundreds and hundreds of pounds, like, you know, a very heavy, they, they can knock you over and eat you, you know, I mean, you, you have no chance against one of these things. We're not talking like, you know, Wilbur and Charlotte's Web or something here. We're talking the really big ones. You know, if you if you go to farms, you'll you'll see the really big ones. Um, yeah, people getting like children in particular, but I think in general, people getting knocked down and eaten by pigs was like a common way people died in like medieval villages, apparently. But not even medieval villages. I mean, do you remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy is like walking in between and she falls into the pigsty? And everybody's panicking. And what they're not saying is that, you know, they're afraid she's going to get trampled and eaten by the pigs. But I feel like what's so interesting about this conversation so far is that we're seeing documentation in the ancient historical and mythological record for things that serial killers do. Like we have feeding bodies to animals, which is a thing some serial killers have done. We have targeting more vulnerable victims. We have mommy issues. Do we have examples in that record of people taking trophies? Or is that kind of more of a literary conceit? Well, I think the examples that we have from antiquity are more in the mythological stories. And they're not, they're not sort of couched in the same sort of way that the trophies that you hear about uh, modern serial killers taking maybe, but there are at least a couple of instances in antiquity where these fictional murderers take the skulls of their victims and build shrines with them to please their fathers. But then you also have things like, well, you know, Theseus seems to have taken a trophy, you know, from one of the criminals he killed, he takes the club and, and uh, from one of them and kind of carries that around uh, for a bit. So, uh, so there's, there's definitely some, it's a mixture of are you just taking a trophy from an enemy that you have conquered, like people do in wartime? So the motivation has a little bit to do with it. Like, why are you taking a trophy? Is it going to remind you of your kills so that you're going to get pleasure out of like looking at it again in a very sort of warped Marie, Marie Kondo way? Do you get joy from it? <laughs> they spark joy. That's why. You know, or or is it like, oh well, we you know the Scythians who took the skulls of their enemies as trophies in war and turned them into drinking cups. Yeah, so I think a, a lot of a lot of the difficulty in pointing to you know definitely serial killing antiquity is getting into the psychology, and we just don't have a lot of that. You know, there are hints at it, and in the case of Nero, and in that one later you know prosecutorial speech, uh, there is definitely some awareness of how the back somebody's background can lead to them becoming a killer in in adulthood. But in general, we don't have the sort of you know deep analysis that people have done in more recent times, especially in the last 50 years or so, when um, the FBI really started paying attention to the concept of serial killer and even came up with the phrase finally. So, uh, you know, I mean, because even for Jack the Ripper, it was like, what's his motivation? I mean, is it mommy issues? You know, why, why prostitutes? What's his problem? You know, so, so there's, there's just so much speculation uh, in a lot of these cases. And yeah, so criminologists and psychologists this is why when you look at these encyclopedias of serial killers who are done by, I don't want to, I don't want to say like more pop, pop culture approaches, but when they list somebody like Lacusta of Gaul or um, even somebody like Caligula or Nero, you know, they're sort of stretching to find evidence that there were serial killers in the ancient world. And this is sort of what prompted me to try to find more evidence. And then there's also the, well, what about the attitude towards death? Wasn't it different? You know, what about all those gladiatorial contests? Weren't people killed in the arenas? And uh, the thing is, you know, that extreme sports are a whole a whole different thing. And we still have them. There's boxing where people beat each other to a bloody ball. Um, you, you know, there's there's car racing where, you know, the spectators are half hoping somebody will get in a horrific crash. You know, so the context of, of the deaths and the killings is important and the motivations behind them, too. Um, why do we like, you know, seeing violence? Why do people slow down to try to catch a glimpse of whatever that car accident on the highway was? There's also examples like, Commodus, who would round people up and just kill them in mass in the arena for his own personal edification. And I kind of wonder if that's an example of, you know, an emperor serial killing out in the open because he has no checks on his power, or whether you'd call that a mass killing. 
Well, and who were the people, though? Were they non-citizens? Were they slaves? Um, because the Romans tended to, well, again, it depended on your class, um, but obviously poor people were not as important. But if you were a Roman citizen, it made a difference uh, in the attitude. And so most of the people who were um, forced to be gladiators in the arenas were prisoners of war. Uh, there were, I think, a few. I, I think Kathleen Coleman at Harvard, you know, who's done a huge amount of work on the gladiators, has pointed out that there were occasionally citizens who wanted a career as a gladiator. But for the most part, you're looking at non-citizens. Um, and I, can, I actually cannot remember whom uh, Commodus was shooting at. <laughs> There was one point when he rounded up a bunch of infirm and sick people and wrapped them in general. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you did the research on this, but he wrapped them in bandages. And there was a weird thing about like sponges that were supposed to be rocks. And then he just, I guess, either shot them with arrows or beat them to death with a club. It was real gory. It was like a mythological way to die in the arena, you know, where he was making these, you know, infirm people and maybe people with, you know, infirmities or deformities, possibly people who had been begging on the street. I mean, Commodus. He was a really disturbed individual, but I and a very, very, very paranoid. I I don't know much about this, but he did like to put on a spectacle, and I think the possibility is these people would have been considered non-citizens. They would have been considered people who essentially didn't matter, which is awful. But that's how Romans treated non-citizens and enslaved people and sex workers. So I think from his point of view, he wouldn't have considered it killing. He would have just considered it like, well. That's what you get. Well, I mean, it, it, but it sort of like rounds back to the practice of infant exposure, which does seem to have been a real practice. So if you had too many girl babies, you might have to leave some of them out there because you couldn't afford dowries for all of them. Or if you had infirm boy children who were never going to be able to help you out, you know, around the house or make, you know, make a living, you would expose the infants and just hope that, uh, you know, the God, it was in God's hands and either. They would die of thirst or hunger or um, animals would get them or something. So it's just like the potential for having infirm people in society was, was not a welcome one. I'm super interested in who's the most prolific serial killer in history. So I wonder if there's an answer to both of those questions. Can I, can I just flip to like, in mythology, who would you say is like the most prolific serial killer? Obviously, besides Theseus. <laughs> well, yeah, sadly, I mean, you know, in past decades, I mean, with forensic, you know, evidence available, they've sort of been thinking this or that person may have killed hundreds, um, you know, in more recent decades. But in antiquity, well, first of all, I don't I don't really consider Theseus a serial killer. If you're trying to profile him, um, the fact that he was, uh, I mean, you know what, let me, let me rephrase that. He was probably considered a serial killer by the people in the other city states. But not for the Athenians. And, and there is that problem, uh, well, problem in terms of calling him a serial killer, that he did get purification and it was therefore cleansed and the miasma of being a killer was then gone from him. But then, yeah, as you say, he, he does all sorts of other things that, that definitely sound like crimes later in life, uh, kidnapping, you know, young Helen, things like that. There's also Heracles who um, kills his whole family and lots of his friends. That's different. That's a family annihilator. That's not uh, that's not a serial killer. He does kill a lot of his friends, though, and women don't fare well around him. And he does. He pulls a Theseus and goes on a murder spree walk. It's sort of like the Theseus story was modeled after the Heracles story. And so and and Heracles is, is given more excuses, too, in terms of, you know, killing his whole family at once, family annihilator. Well, he was driven mad by the goddess Hera. So, um, but, but yeah, so, so Heracles, I mean, he's famous for the 12 labors, which mostly involve killing monsters to make the countryside safe for people. But in between those labors, like, like, as you just mentioned, he sort of, his, his, basically his road trip, his wandering around the roads. I mean, his first six labors are in the Peloponnese, like they're in Southern Greece, but after that, they're just all over the place. So he's traveling in North Africa, for example, and there's a, there's a local king there who insists on wrestling everybody. Uh, and kills them when they lose the fight, uh, when they lose the match. Um, but Heracles gets the better of him. I mean, and Antaeus, for example. I mean, there's a lot of wrestlers actually involved in these stories. Yeah, I feel like that's a whole nother level of toxic masculinity where they're just like, all right, we're going to out-wrestle the strongest man in the world. And if we can't... <laughs> just add that to the murder pile. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but there, there's the there's the wrestling and there's the boxing. So those two sort of sports, like before they became sort of more managed as sports, those two things, like you're saying, 
yes, these are how the men would, would fight and try to prove their, their superiority and their virility. So Heracles ended up killing quite a few people along the same lines that Theseus did later. The Theseus stories were later. Um, the Athenians seemed to have wanted to create their own hero based on the model of, of, of Heracles. So you could, you could point to Heracles too and say, oh, well, he kind of was a serial killer because he went around killing all these people. He does get purification, though, a couple of times. Not the last time. <laughs> he does get some purification. But another difference is that he didn't intentionally go out there meaning to kill any of these people. Theseus knew that there were criminals on the road. He had been warned by his grandfather. And he's like, well, I'll handle them. So he knew there was a possibility he was going to have to kill these people or he even wanted to to try to prove himself. Whereas Heracles was just going between one labor and another and sort of got waylaid. Like he needs to get from point A to point B, but in between there's, there's somebody who needs to challenge him to wrestling or boxing or whatever it is, or make him do tasks like harvesting. And well, I can harvest more grain than you. So, <laughs> um, uh, so I'm going to kill you now. And <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so there's some very, very strange uh, uh, things for him to overcome, but the motivation is a little different. So unlike Theseus, who intentionally wanted to go out and face these things, Heracles is just trying to do the assigned labors that he has to do. And the, uh, by the way, all of those labors, as I think you mentioned, those were all to atone for killing his family. And in both cases, uh, Heracles and Theseus, the idea is that they're saving society from these monsters and criminals, like they're actually saving people and making the world a safer place. So the, um, the way that the stories are told by the people who, whose heroes they are. So again, with the Athenians, Theseus is the hero, but to the neighboring, you know, Eleusinians, maybe not so much <laughs> since he killed their king. Yeah. It, so the perception, I mean, the who's, who's generating the story and why, you know, is it political propaganda? Is it more of a Heracles, the sort of this liminal figure between like um, uncivilized and civilized Greece in, in a way. I mean, his, one of his main weapons is his, is his club. Um, he does have a bow and arrow, which is sort of ubiquitous, but he rarely, if ever, uses a sword, whereas Theseus relies more on the, the sword, the technology. But he has the club because he needed that club to show that harken back to Heracles. I'm still fascinated by the most prolific serial killer in mythology. I mean, you know, if you're looking for the ancient mass murder, you could look at Odysseus killing all of those suitors. Was that 100, 108 of them or something? I mean, of course he had help, but still. And all the maids. The maids. Yeah, he strung the, he strung the maids up. It was like worse than what they did to the suitors. Yeah. Of course it would be worse to the women who didn't actually commit crimes. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, and you've got, you know, you've got those groups of women who all killed their spouses for various reasons and. But not necessarily serial killings. That's an interesting topic, though, too, because when you talk about intent, women were married off to men with frequently no choice in the matter in the ancient world and lots of different cultures. And you didn't have a lot of options if you, you couldn't just get a divorce, you know. So if you were a woman in that time, maybe your only option to get out of a really bad situation was to poison your spouse. And that isn't necessarily serial killing. It's it's like self-defense. It depends on how many spouses. <laughs> Over two, and it might be that you have a taste for this. <laughs> it might be an acquired taste. Um, no, I think I think even just two can count these days. Yeah, I just look at how different marriage was for women then than now, where the expectation is that at least you voluntarily married that person. Sometimes in some cultures. Yeah, so, uh, you know, so there's there's a lot of, like subtexts or undercurrents in terms of why they're doing what they're doing, why the people who came up with the stories have them doing what they're doing in the stories. And it's, it's a lot of guesswork or, I mean, or just a lot of theory, like why, why are they being told this way? In terms of the historical people that you might categorize as serial killers that you've researched so far, who's the scariest one? Like, who's the one you would not, you definitely would not want to meet in person? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. I mean, to be honest, Nero just comes across as so Norman Bates. Like with the mother issues and this sort of unpredictability, but honestly, there are scarier people in Greek history who I, you know, again, don't know if we would want to call them serial killers. But I'm, I'm thinking, you know, King Cambyses, the the Persian king um, who conquered Egypt. He was nuts. I mean, he could like you one minute and turn around and kill you the next minute. So, um, you know, I don't really talk about him in the book, but his unpredictability is what makes him so terrifying. He's clearly unbalanced. Like he, he kicks his pregnant his pregnant sister wife to death 
Oh, Nero does that too. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, I, I've, uh, for some reason, I've never found the Roman imperial family as interesting as some of these other less well-known stories. Maybe it's because the imperial family is is kind of popular in terms of, of history. And there's, and then because we do have more information about them from the historians, however biased it is. Some of these other stories that just show up in one place, like like Cambyses in Herodotus's Histories, the guy is just nuts in in such a, a, a disturbing way. And then now they're all like, oh, well, maybe he suffered from severe alcoholism or syphilis or something. <laughs> so they're trying to go back and say, this is what made him so so insane and so unpredictable and therefore so dangerous. Well, that's Henry VIII, right? He had, he had syphilis. That's what happened. I mean, what was it? There was a story about Cambyses where... Um, so one of his advisors, King Croesus, a uh, former King Croesus of Lydia, ended up as a slave to Cambyses. So Cambyses got upset with Croesus at one point and said, just kill him, just execute him. And the servants who were supposed to execute Croesus were like, you know, he's going to change his mind five minutes from now. And he's going to be upset with us for having done it. So they, they didn't have the guy executed. And of course, Cambyses does change his mind. And oh, I'm glad you didn't kill Croesus, but you disobeyed my orders. So now you're all going to die. And he has them and he has the servants executed. That unpredictability to me is is kind of worse than, uh, you know, anything I, I, I turned up for the serial killers book. Yeah. And this is, you know, it kind of goes back to what Caligula told his grandma, I can do anything to anybody. You know, you give somebody who already is imbalanced in that way ultimate power and look what happens. Like they become very scary. Oh, you you mean like I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and no one's going to care? That kind of thing? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Do you think it was easier to be a serial killer in ancient Rome, in ancient Greece, or in the present day? And why? That's such an easy question. (laughs) If I have to answer it, I would say ancient Greece, actually. I mean, these days, there are still serial killers who are not caught, but there is at least the possibility of so much more forensic evidence. Um, I mean, if anything, it at least has to, you know, force serial killers to be even more careful and more clever, clever and hide themselves better. But I think it becomes it becomes probably more difficult. The other thing is it's hard to tell, well, how many potential serial killers were caught before they managed to kill more than one person because of forensic evidence they were caught early, maybe. But I don't know. But in ancient Greece, there were I mean, people were so much more isolated and it would have been so much easier to travel from place to place and and get away with murder even than in Rome, really. Um, so I don't know. I uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting question and a, one that's really tough to answer in terms of how you're going to go about your killings, I guess. Yeah, and it would also depend on your victims somewhat, because in ancient Rome, if you're targeting people on the margins of society, you weren't. No one's going to look too hard at that, at those killings, right? Yeah, I mean, especially in Rome, I, I think the Greeks. There were certainly classes, but I don't think it was quite as bad as in uh, under imperial Rome, where you had the slums and people just didn't care what went on there. But also, um, like I said, in, in ancient Greece there was really no centralized control. I mean, so you've got, you've got Rome and it's like the center of this, becomes the center of this empire and the empire is sort of monitored. Even if you don't have enough troops to monitor the whole thing, there's still a system in place to attempt it. In ancient Greece, there was no centralized government. It was just a bunch of separate Greek city-states, you know, until at least until Alexander took over. Like you're saying with the victims, though, it's it's harder. I mean, people didn't necessarily travel that much on their own. Women certainly weren't going out. So if you if you were somebody who needed to target women, it would be a lot more difficult in Greece and Rome because women had a lot less personal freedom in terms of going out accompanied um, and walking around at night, etc. And it's, it's not even that that many people did go out at night at all, really. Um, so it would depend on how isolated the area is that you're that you're in and are you on a road or not. And even now, the highways are still one of the main places where serial killing occurs, and it's hard to catch them because are you dealing with some trucker, you know, who's interstate and just at a rest stop? And then there are actually a lot of highway murders that have not been solved in the States because of that very thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like if you are an itinerant person as a serial killer, you probably have an easier time getting away with it. Yeah, especially if your victims are also itinerant. And there are just wildly varying estimates of how many active serial killers are even in the United States right now, you know, anything from dozens to hundreds. So clearly there's 
<laughs> Even with modern forensics, it's very hard to tell. But modern forensics and familial DNA and like when you put your DNA on places like Ancestry.com have been solving a lot of cases as well as like the ability now that everything is being surveilled. If I was going to be a serial killer, I agree. Definitely ancient Greece. Yeah, but no, I mean, like, like you were saying, the familial DNA is, is, is something that's really, I mean, that's caught a couple of major ones just lately in the last couple of years, right? Yeah, Golden State. Yeah, the, I was going to say the Golden State Killer. I've been meaning to read that that book. Um, you know, the one by Pat Oswalt's um, wife. Yeah, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Yes, thank you. I could not remember that. She spent her, you know, a lot of her life on that one. So many people did. And it's it's just, it's incredible that familial DNA now is something that will be able to help us find these predators. Yeah, and I guess the moral is like, don't put your, uh, your DNA on those, on those sites. Or do if you are, have any questions about people in your family. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's been happening more, of course, with those sites is people fighting out, oh, so-and-so wasn't really my father. Or so-and-so was serially impregnating women as a fertility doctor. My uh, husband is also my biological brother. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid there probably have been some cases like that, you know, unwittingly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there have. This has been so fascinating, Debbie. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you again for having me. It's always, I, I, these things are always um, fun for me just because I get questions that I haven't gotten before. And then I have to sort of think on the spur of the moment and then maybe take, you know, have a takeaway and think about it some more. So it's, thank you for having me. It's just, it's always, it's really always nice to sort of get people, different people's perspectives on this topic. Our pleasure. This has been fantastic. And reading your book has been really fascinating. It's been such a pleasure. It's been so enlightening. And honestly, I'm just going to be thinking about this interview for days. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find out more about your books, uh, find you online, all that kind of stuff? Well, disappointingly for myself, I think um, I, I really just have the university website, faculty website for myself, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. You know, uh, people have been asking me, like, why don't I set up Twitter or Instagram or, you know, a blog or something? And I just feel like a little overwhelmed with, you know, online material. And so I, I don't have anything like that. But my books are on, um, you get information from the university faculty website for the Department of Classics and Professor Debbie Felton. And my books are on Amazon um, and various other places, you know, Barnes and Noble, whatever. But um, in addition to the Monsters and Monarchs, the other one that um, might be kind of relevant this time of year is my book on... Um, Haunted Greece and Rome, which is about um, ancient Greek and Roman ghost stories. And um, then there are a couple of edited volumes that are, I mean, you know, I, I, what I like to do is public facing scholarship, like the serial killers book and the ghost story book. But I also do, you know, more detailed scholarship. And so I've got a couple of edited volumes that are um, also out there about fairy tales in the ancient world or um, the emotion of, of, of dread uh, in ancient literature. So, um, yeah, but it's all it's all on the um, the faculty web page for, for me at the university. So University of Massachusetts Amherst and it's the Department of Classics. And I'm Debbie Felton. And thank you again for having me. You are so welcome. This has been so lovely. And thank you so much to everybody for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.